Jerry DiPiano from Fem Pharma, and you are listening to the Love Mia Vita podcast. Our guests today are Dr. Dana Shannis and Ms. Catherine McGinty, who are the founders of V Health and Wellness based in Philadelphia. Dana and Catherine, welcome to the Love Mia Vita podcast. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. It's it's our pleasure. Today's podcast is going to focus on a highly differentiated approach in gynecologic medicine. And it's really focusing on the holistic approach that V Health and Wellness have taken that looks more broadly at issues that affect women, but that could apply to both genders, both men and women. So first, I'd like Dr. Shannis and Ms. McGinty to share a little bit more about their backgrounds with you. And then we could talk more about what is holistic medicine? Thank you so much. Um, I'm Dana Shannis. I'm a board certified OBGYN and I'm the owner of V Health and Wellness and the Shannis Pelvic Institute. Uh, After my training in OBGYN, I actually did a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health um, in the gynecologic care of medically complex women and cancer survivors. So for the past more than a decade, my passion has really been in, in treating pelvic pain, sexual health, and cancer survivor care. And I'm Catherine McGinty. I'm a family nurse practitioner, and I've been working in women's health for the past 10 years. Um, about our practice, we actually, Dr. Shannis and I actually met working at a women's health practice um, in Philadelphia. And what we saw were a lot of women suffering with complex issues or um, like pelvic pain or sexual health concerns that were really not being addressed um, by um, their gynecologists or their providers. Um, and even us within the constraints of a standard practice model, it was kind of difficult to um, address all of those concerns. So we started our yeah. practice to be able to take the time to do that. To, yeah. to kind of a, to address those kind of complex issues more completely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, interestingly enough, many of the professional organizations, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to condemn anyone, but most <laughs> many of the professional organizations viewed the practice of obstetrics and gynecology or in particular gynecology is really uh, more narrowly focused, even though the gyneco- practice of gynecology which and obstetrics which focuses on women should be broader, really the primary care practitioners for women's health. So why do you think it was overlooked or perhaps underappreciated? Well, I think that historically women's health care in general has been under research, under um, that underfunded, undervalued. And so I think that we were really... Um, gynecology was really just kind of treating what illnesses came up that were clearly identifiable as um, issues that were going to cost money to the healthcare system or interfere with a man's ability to enjoy himself or, um, you know, I I joke, but, um, but really gynecology was run by men for thousands of years. Um, And I think that that is part of the problem that um, as we learn more that preventative care and um, preventative medicine 
really can can be huge in in disease prevention. Um, you know, I think that we are taking a more complete look at how to approach women's health. So, you know, I would say having been trained as an OBGYN, we actually learned a lot about um, the different stages of a of a woman's life and both health and illness. Um, so, you know, I I do actually think that we um, you uh, are at a point where we know a lot, um, but actually practicing that day to day is limited by our current healthcare system. I think. So you are you are speaking to the converted. When we when we think about the mission, uh, it's the why of Fem Pharma, and it really is around women's health equity. And women's health equity starts with looking at diseases and disorders and conditions that disproportionately affect women. And I, I always say it's the A to Z of women's health, because if you look at autoimmune diseases and you look at uh, benign breast disorders and you look at uh, dysfunctional uterine bleeding or major depressive disorder, so you could go down the list to the alphabet of women's health care. And at one time we concluded, for those of you that don't believe there is tremendous opportunity in women's health care, and that it's not worthy of investing. It's over $116 billion of opportunity. Oh, by the way, I excluded hormone replacement therapy and contraception. I included all of the other areas where you could make an impact in women's health. So this is music to our ears. And it really does start with, how do you design services, and in our case, products that uniquely suit a woman at her stage of life, because let's face it, differences in women who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, even in the way we provide therapy. And so we're going to get, we're going to get into a little bit of that, but when I heard that Dana and Catherine at V Health and Wellness had embarked upon this, I thought, wow. This is really, this is game changing for women. And it really, not that we want to create competitors for you, <laughs> it really ought to be the way we think about women's health and women's health equity. So tell me your offering, what, what does V Health and Wellness offer in terms of services? Um, so we started out um, in 2019 and our initial offerings were uh, consultations on pelvic pain, sexual health, uh, cancer survivor care, medical marijuana certifications, and aesthetics. Um, and that was our initial offering. And, um, you know, I think part of how we have evolved and grown speaks to, to the question that you just answered of how do we serve people at different times. And what we found is that in spending the time to discuss all aspects of a patient's life, um, talking about their diet and exercise and their mental health and their, um, you know, all the different aspects that play a role, um, we, we really realize that there's a need to look at, at the individual more comprehensively. So um, what we also found is that we both had patients that had seen us previously who kept coming to us saying, you know, I saw a new provider for my menopause, or I saw a new provider for my fibroids, and I just didn't feel like I was heard or I didn't understand what they were saying and they, or they didn't give me treatment options. So we actually expanded our offerings to really treat a range of conditions that we feel are not adequately addressed 
with the short visits and kind of just traditional Western healthcare options that, um, that most patients are being offered by their traditional gynecologist. So that's why we really evolved to now include um, some additional testing um, and, and services that we really offer that. So we, we also do functional medicine testing to look for um, nutritional imbalances, uh, gut microbiome imbalances, or nutrition deficiencies, I should say. Um, and then also we kind of, we do counseling on diet and lifestyle and we do offer, you know, um, counseling on supplements. But I think when we're looking at the whole picture, when you're mentioning all the, the illnesses and diseases that women can experience, there can be, sometimes there might be an underlying root to that besides just the diagnosis and the symptoms that they're experiencing. And so we're, we're trying to take a step back and think, okay, yes, you have this diagnosis. Yes, we are, have been able to identify that, but also why? Like, wh where did this come from? Is there a generational uh, component? Is there a genetic? Is there a, an a environmental exposure? You know, so it's just taking a step back and um, looking at all the everything that can also be affecting a woman's life. Yeah, and, and along those lines, one of the big pieces that I think get, gets overlooked a lot is mental health and previous trauma, um, which is something that um, is not always disclosed in a 15-minute visit. You know, you say, are you currently safe at home? And, and you know, a patient will say yes, but um, that's not how you build the trust to have somebody um, open up about um, trauma they've been through. And so, um, you know, I think it's very clear both in the evidence and also just, um, you know, I'm sure we all have experienced that our mental health greatly affects our physical health um, and how we respond to, to treatment. And, you know, um, and, and so I think that that's a big um, piece of what we try to offer in all of our services is building that relationship where there is trust, where they can disclose the information that ultimately we need to address to get them to their, their best health. Because um, you know, uh, something that we like to say is that um, to us, health is not just treating a disease. It's more than, than just treating an illness. So I love the idea of the exploration. Uh, we recently did uh, a podcast on the bi-directional nature of the gut and the brain. Yep. And we have underappreciated the impact of the gut in the brain and the brain to the gut. So when we think about as one example, irritable bowel syndrome, and we have we, we think about well how do we how does the brain control the bowel? No question there is, you know, there's an implication there. But perhaps we've missed the part where if you have irritable bowel syndrome and you have unhealthy bacteria, that you were probably exacerbating what might, might be major depressive disorder. So there's a lot of great research that's taking place, but until we uncover some of the root causes, which I think is what you're suggesting, yeah. we can't really help our patients because just putting a Band-Aid on it, right? It's like putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. It will continue, and we think about mental health, as you pointed out, there's a reason why there's high switching behavior. You try one antidepressant, that one doesn't work. Then you, you switch to another one because that calms you down. That one didn't work either. So we see a lot of failures in mental health 
because we really don't know what many of the underlying causes or predisposing factors may be. And a lot of, a lot of it is, let's face it, qualitative. So I, I, I love the idea. What other, um, so what other testing? Say I came in as a patient and I was complaining, uh, we can pick pelvic pain or breast pain. How would you work me up? So first we'd start with, with chatting, you know, um, and what we try to do differently is let you talk and tell your story instead of, you know, asking questions right away. So we'd say, tell us what's going on. Um, and, you know, some people start at the beginning, some people start at the end, some start in the middle, but, um, but all of that is very meaningful in, in, in kind of telling us not only the progression of what has happened, but also what other associated factors, um, you know, might be going on. Um, then we do get specific history. Um, and, um, and Catherine, if you want to talk about some of the things that we, that we ask about in the history. Well, we would go into what their diet is, sleep and stressors, as well as family history, um, and then any history of trauma. Um, but uh, you kind of also mentioned the testing. Uh, and, I, and I think we, if it's something specific like pelvic pain or breast pain, you know, we'll, with the exam, it might not require testing um, in that case. But I think by asking about the diet and maybe finding out that they are feeling sluggish and fatigued, and then they also have chronic constipation, that's usually where, so it, they might be coming in with pelvic pain or breast pain, but it's really the conversation of the other factors where we're like, oh, this actually might be a gut thing if you're having chronic constipation as well, or you're having trouble sleeping. So maybe it's an adrenal process. Um, and, and so that's usually where, uh, what helps us to pinpoint what testing we might yeah. do. And also in the history, um, often there comes out um, signs of inflammation or autoimmune issues or, um, you know, other seemingly unrelated symptoms that actually may be related to the underlying root cause. So um, after we get this history and kind of go through all of these details, we would do an exam and we would look for signs of lack of estrogen. We would look for signs of um, neuromuscular inflammation. We would look for signs of central um, sensitization, um, which is something that occurs with chronic pain that can affect how you respond to pain sensors everywhere in your body. Um, and we kind of address all of these issues. Um, and then from the history in that exam, at that point, um, it, it depends really on what we find, but um, it is possible that we might order some imaging if there was anything concerning on exam. Um, and we may recommend some medication, again, either locally or orally, depending on which, which systems are involved. Um, we actually counsel almost all our patients on an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, I've yet to find anybody with chronic pain that does not have an element of inflammation. So, um, you know, if the pain really is their only issue, and they don't seem to have gut, which also again is very rare. Um, but you know, I may just recommend that they do an anti-inflammatory diet to try first without doing any testing. Um, but almost always there are these other symptoms that do indicate that there may be another imbalance. 
And then we offer the testing, um, functional medicine testing. So it's pretty comprehensive. How long do your visits last? Because I know that at least for some of the visits that I've had with my practitioners, by the way, if any of my practitioners are listening to the podcast, I love you all. But we <laughs> get 15 minutes. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's really why we created this practice. Our initial visits are 60 to 90 minutes. And, um, and I know I have never cut somebody off. Um, you know, in, in my previous practice, I always ran late because I wanted to give the necessary time. And, um, you know, so I, I don't cut patients off. Um, and it, and it really does take that long to be that comprehensive, but I do want to kind of put, um, a defense of practitioners out there. Um, that it's a really hard job to work in these clinics that, that work with insurance. Um, and, you know, I, I worked at a large university. I worked at a small private practice. And the challenges were really, um, you know, the same in that it was about getting people through for insurance reimbursement. And the insurance companies are just not valuing the education, the comprehensiveness yet. I think they will. Um, because I think the outcomes are starting to show that they're better um, and actually saving them money in the long run. Um, so I hope that that will change. Um, but it's really hard for a practitioner in that setting to be able to be comprehensive. Um, you really are, you know, I use the analogy of putting out fires um, instead of being able to, to look at the underlying, you know, issues and, and, and really give complete treatment. So um, we are not, in, uh, we're out of network with insurance, so we don't have to work with that challenge. Um, so it, it gives us the luxury of spending more time. You know, it's, uh, you're absolutely spot on with taking a defensive position with practitioners, particularly after what we've been through with the pandemic. So I recall having conversations, we do podcasts just like this one with lots of healthcare practitioners and they were so stressed from the system, even though they couldn't see patients in person, 35 Zoom calls a day. I'm not sure when a healthcare practitioner had an opportunity to, to grab something to eat, use the bathroom, just take a break, deep breath, next patient. So in defense of the healthcare practitioners, I think you mentioned um, the, far, the economic situation and the handcuffs that are placed on healthcare practitioners by some of the, the providers, the carriers, et cetera, and the necessity to be producing, right? So it's, you know, you're producing revenue. And if you're not producing revenue, then there's a problem. Not my, this is not my belief, but it is the belief of other providers. And then you, you think about the pharmacoeconomic argument or the economic argument for taking a bit longer with a patient and evaluating the patient more carefully because perhaps you don't need another prescription product. Right. And I'm a prescription drug manufacturer, so yeah. <laughs> I've been in the industry for over 30 years, so I'm not indicting the pharmaceutical industry either. We do a lot of great work. But let's face it, our, our job is to treat disease and disorder when it's necessary and, and when it can be ameliorated through different modalities. And I think that's what we're gonna get into. When it can be ameliorated by over-the-counter products or by services, whether they are services that improve our mental health or combination of our mental and physical health, then those are opportunities for us 
to intervene without putting undue burden on the patient and on the system, the economics, right? So they- I agree. I also think, um, you know, I agree with everything you're saying. In addition to that, sometimes patients do need a medication, but it has it, it um, been shown over and over again that the more that they understand and, and are invested in that option um, and believe it will work, um, the, the better they do. Um, and so, you know, a lot of patients, if they're just set, handed a medication and said, this is what you do for it, um, you know, they want to see that it isn't that they could take a supplement. It isn't that they, you know, could just change their diet or do something else um, and explain kind of why that medication is, if it is necessary. Um, I think that pe- patients do better with that too. So we aren't always trying to, um, you know, I, I, we actually bridge that gap where we say sometimes you need medication, sometimes you don't. Um, and I think we're going to get into more kind of, um, the, yeah, but, um, but it isn't wrong to use medication, but it also is important to look at the, the underlying issues and see if there are other options so that if you do choose that medication, you feel like you came to that um, educated. And that, and that is super important. So we, we always want to revert to Dr. Google, right? So you go to your <laughs> healthcare practitioner and your healthcare practitioner may recommend something. Then you go and check Dr. Google. Google. It's not a great idea. Even for those of us that know how to use PubMed and research scientific articles, we're dangerous because we haven't, we haven't done a self-examination. And unless you're a healthcare practitioner or provider um, with, with degrees and experience, and even then sometimes you're not the, you, you, you shouldn't administer your own medication and, and healthcare, but uh, those of us that aren't in the practice of medicine are really, really dangerous. So we want you to be sure, even when you listen to this podcast, and I say this as a caveat, this is informational. This is not meant to replace your healthcare practitioner. So although you have a nurse practitioner and a board certified OBGYN on this podcast, we encourage you to take this as informational only and not meant to replace the relationship you have with your healthcare practitioner. Now, having said that, if you happen to live in the Philadelphia area or mind <laughs> driving, you can make an appointment with Catherine McGinty or Dr. Shannis, but for now, this is meant to be informational. So we talk about holistic medicine, we hear about holistic, integrative, and functional. What's the difference? So there, there are a lot of similarities um, and a, a lot of it is semantics and perception. So um, in terms of functional medicine, there is um, actual testing looking at um, more detailed um, labs than is done in traditional um, medicine. So, um, you know, this started before there was a, a ton of data on it, um, looking at things like microbiome, looking at things like various nutrients that were not typically associated with deficiencies, um, looking at the um, hormonal byproducts and, and um, you know, things that um, were not traditionally associated um, with the diagnosis um, for diseases um, in traditional medicine. Well, and I think also there's um, alternative therapies and complementary therapies that are um, 
used interchangeably as well. And complementary therapies are usually used. I mean, you asked about holistic medicine, but I just want to mention that that those are usually used alongside conventional medicine, whereas alternative therapies are used um, instead of. And in our practice, we kind of came to the term holistic medicine because of our approach, probably not because of a specific definition that you can find. Uh, but we, um, so, and in terms of integrative, um, that includes um, things like acupuncture, like, um, you know, there are different types of integrative care, but um, herbals and supplements and things like that as well. Um, but the, the term holistic, we actually pick and choose from each of those areas. So from functional medicine, we think that some of the testing is very valuable. From integrative, there's evidence to support some of these other um, treatments as well. Um, and so you know, we chose the term holistic because we pick and choose and we're not just following one type of medicine. Um, but I, I think um, uh, it's to kind of look at all aspects of the patient. Um, and all of this terminology can be very polarizing within the medical community, which is also a reason that we kind of have stayed away from traditional functional or traditional integrative medicine. Um, because the response that we get um, you know, from providers when we explain our approach of being evidence-based and comprehensive, we get a great response because it makes sense. If you walk in and, and say some, to somebody, you're a functional medicine doctor, they might have a knee-jerk reaction and assume that you are just selling a whole bunch of supplements or that you are just um, bypassing traditional medicine. And um, you know, that is not the way that we practice. We think that there's space for both. In, in our holistic medicine model, we think that there is space for alternative medicine and conventional medicine. And so um, that's kind of where we think we fall into the holistic medicine space. And what we choose depends on that individual. We have a lot of different options um, that we can, can pull from our bag of tricks. I believe that our audience and listeners will find that the individualized approach is really something that has that is long overdue. And we've talked we talk about this. You know, there's been a lot that's been published on individualized medicine, and how to think more clearly about the integration of what you just described, and which I will refer to not your words but mine, the best in class approach of all of the aspects of whether it's functional, integrative, alternative, what have you. Like and that. Much of this, I believe, emanates from your experience, Dana, working in the coordination of care with cancer patients. Perhaps you could share a little bit about that experience and how it, it led you and Catherine to make this decision, because it sort of sounds like that's what may have happened here. Yeah, um, sure. So um, I did a fellowship at the National Insti Institutes of Health. And my research while I was there was on uh, survivors of bone marrow transplants. And um, in researching that, we worked very closely with the bone marrow transplant surgeon. Uh, and the nature of NIH is that all of the different fields are doing research. And so we all coordinated together. And there were actually nurse care coordinators that for each of the cancer patients, that would arrange for the gynecology visit and the hematology visit and the um, you know, primary care and the pulmonology. 
and kind of got all of these groups together. Um, mental health was also involved, um, which is so important um, for everybody, but especially when you're undergoing a trauma like, uh, like cancer. Um, and so what I saw in that is that these patients were really being, all aspects of their life were being addressed and coordinated together. Um, and they really did well, both you know, clinically with their cancer, but also we were able to find um, inter and intervene early on issues like sexual health, um, an issue like genital graft versus host disease, which is something if left for years, can actually lead to irreversible changes that um, you know, can prohibit intercourse permanently. So um, that coordination of care during cancer treatment really led to better outcomes all around for the patients and the patients really valued it. Um, since then, um, as I pre presented my uh, research, because I, I still am involved in the same research on, on sexual health in these cancer survivors, um, I've talked with a lot of oncologists who they themselves don't have the bandwidth or the interest or the ability, which I understand, to deal with all of these issues. But what is becoming more commonplace in, in cancer centers um, is care coordinators that are um, addressing these quality of life issues. So uh, immediately dealing with mental health, immediately doing, dealing with sexual health or pelvic pain um, or fertility in those that, that um, is a concern. Um, so I think that, that the cancer field is actually a good model um, of starting to see the value of integrating all aspects of, of a patient's care. Um, I even know some cancer centers that actually offer um, acupuncture in their center or um, you know, have meditation or mindfulness classes, um, all things that you know, can really help uh, go through a trauma like that. Uh, so I think that that seeing that coordination did really um, inspire me to, to what I, I actually think all people deserve, which is somebody saying, you know, a lot of people have mental health issues. A lot of people have issues with their gut and diet and, and sexuality or whatever it may be. Um, and, and having resources and support to discuss all of those issues. You know, you, um, you, you also, you mentioned something early on uh, in terms of the offering of your services. You mentioned medical marijuana and the mm -hmm. uh, certification, but so much more than just doing certifications. This is, we know that there are lots of places where individuals, if this is something of interest, um, can seek this out. But finding a provider, providers like you and Catherine is really important. Tell us why. So in terms of medical marijuana, the, the actual evidence and research has kind of lagged behind where other um, areas might have done better because of all the, the um, restrictions and um, issues with legality um, in the US. So now there is starting to be some more um, data on it, but what is really valuable in um, considering medical marijuana for a, a condition is really anecdotal experience. Um, and thinking about it in, in not um, such a black and white way. Um, so what we, we do for our patients, um, and so we're in Pennsylvania, so there are um, very clear criteria. Um, recreational marijuana is not legal, but medical is for specific conditions. 
So if you fall, and cancer is one of them, um, pain is one of them, anxiety is one of them. Um, so, you know, that covers a good percentage of our patients um, and probably people in general at this point. Um, because who isn't anxious these days? But um, so it's not just about saying, okay, yeah, I checked the box, you qualify for the state of Pennsylvania. It's really talking about um, the different formulations, the process for finding the right medication, and then also delivery. Um, so we have some novel ways that we, we advise patients to take it. Um, one being of kind of creating your own vaginal suppository. Um, and, and for vaginal absorption, um, which with other medications, we do have data and um, experience with working well for these pelvic disorders. Um, and, the, um, and we've seen patients do really well using THC um, vaginally as well. So um, you know, I think what's really valuable if you are gonna go that route is talking to somebody who has experience treating people with that to kind of go over the process and, and ways to think of it that might make it um, the most effective treatment. So it, it probably is very confusing. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with medical marijuana, but I do understand how the dispensaries do work because I knew, mm -hmm. knew folks that have actually received cards and so forth. And it can be very confusing. So you're relying on the staff within the dispensary to make some of these decisions. And I suppose it's a bit like a trial and error. So it would be very helpful if you had a professional who not only was able to do the appropriate interview with you, gather the appropriate data to determine whether you qualify, but to also help you to determine what's the right strain, what the maybe the frequency would be, how to avoid certain types of side effects, based upon the use of those types of opportunities, let's call them opportunities there. Um, and we do see that we can harness the potential of medical marijuana. And, um, and again, under the right supervision, lots of folks are benefiting from that. Um, so very cutting edge stuff here. Um, what do you think about gynecology and uh, gynecology evolving from just, you know, thinking about women as pelvic and reproductive diseases and disorders to something that's much broader as in what you folks have now provided through V Health and Wellness. Moving forward, um, I think as the evidence starts to build, showing that outcomes are better taking this approach um, and just in general, more focus of the insurance companies, because I think they're a big driver of, of healthcare, unfortunately. Um, once, as they start to value these things more, I am hoping that, um, that it becomes more commonplace to take this approach. We say all the time that we would love to be put out of business because everybody is providing such good care. Um, but we also know that we're not really at risk in the near future of, of that happening. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, or I hope that moving forward, we are going to move more towards this. And I think as um, the data is coming out, not just on the cost effectiveness, um, but also on specifics of how to treat these, the, you know, a lot of the functional testing, we 
adopted because now we have clinical information of what to do with the results. The more that this comes out and allows us to individualize care um, for patients, I hope that that will be adopted more broadly. I also think that um, out of necessity and also you know, the boom in information online and in social media, patients are advocating for themselves more. And so I think gynecologists are gonna have to kind of keep up with that as well. So I think that um, women deserve it. They deserve to be thought of outside of just their body parts, um, their breasts and vaginas and uteruses. And they're going to be asking for um, more comprehensive approaches as well. So, um, you know, I think that it is a trend that we will see, but um, for now, for now, but I think that understandably it, it is difficult in the current medical healthcare system. So the, the revolution evolution is taking place. We always refer to it as the revolution and it's really because of the demographics and what we've seen in the explosion in the demographics between boomers and millennials, right? So the millennials are the children of the boomers. There are lot, lots of us out there and this is not to be disrespectful, but the worried well. So we, it's not the same old story. It's not your mother's whatever. It's not your mother's uh, reproductive age group cohort where we thought about birth control in one way. There are lots of different ways to access birth control or not access birth control. Same thing as you think about motherhood and your options for becoming a mother. When you become a mother, you're not a geriatric pregnancy at 35. And then we think about the difference in delivering menopause a different way, right? It's just another transition in life. But the evolution and revolution comes more from, it's gotta be, there's gotta be a different way in which to approach more broadly, how we think about, we said this in the very beginning, women, because we're speaking about women and women's health care, women's health equity. But if we do a better job with women's health equity, we benefit all people. Absolutely. And that's the bottom line, right? You're in healthcare as clinicians, I'm in healthcare to provide products and services. We're here for a reason. We care about doing a better job than the previous generation did. So with that, I wanna thank you for being our guests on the Love Mia Vita podcast. Very inspiring conversation. I hope that there will be a part two. We can get into a little bit more conversation around some of the novel work that you're doing and uh, perhaps talk about the cancer and cancer community because we know that uh, there are some conferences that are coming up uh, where survivors are looking for resources and the resources that you provide. So I want to thank you once again. This was wonderful. Uh, this is Dr. Dana Shannis and Ms. Catherine McGinty from V Health and Wellness based just out of Philadelphia. And if you'd like to look them up, you have their, the name of their website, and I'm sure they'd be happy to do a conference call with you, or if you're in the area, make an appointment with them. So thank you once again. And to all of our listeners and viewers, remember to love Mia Vita. Thank you.